Uh, our text this morning will be in 2 Peter, uh, the short letter of 2 Peter towards the end of your uh, Bible. And we'll be looking at this little letter in its entirety here today as we continue our study that we've called Route 66. Uh, the Great Wall of China is an imposing sight. Uh, it spans over 5,000 miles of rugged, mountainous territory along the northern border of China. Uh, it was intended to keep out the raiding Mongol tribes that would sweep down from the north. Uh, guards would be stationed. If you look carefully, even at this photo, you can see sort of little turrets along the way. Every uh, few uh, you know, hundred yards, so there'd be a little tower and guards would be stationed there. Uh, they would have a mechanism to be able to light a fire, a signal fire that could be seen by the next tower, and, and those fires could be lit as a way of sort of communicating um, in the ancient world. And then even the ability to transport troops quickly along the wall to points where uh, there was maybe an invasion or a threat building, uh, even horses uh, could be, could be uh, conveyed along this uh, really majestic wall. So uh, the, um, the greatest threats, however, for China were not generally the ones outside of her walls. <laughs> um, the walls largely prevented frontal attacks some of the most glaring breakdowns in their defenses were internal. Uh, for example, in 1644, the Ming Dynasty was betrayed to invading Manchu forces by a treasonous general who simply opened the gate and let the foreign armies come in. <laughs> so the, uh, the defensive structures were only as good as the, the hearts of those who manned the defenses, right? And uh, Peter, I think, has something similar to say here in this little letter. Uh, he writes in his first letter, in 1 Peter, about the sort of antagonistic culture out there. But in this letter, he talks about the insidious threats from within, uh, specifically in the form of false teaching. And he wants his readers and, and, and wants us to be on our guard against subtle pitfalls and false teachings that can find their way into the church. So this is Peter's, uh, this is really the focus of this little three-chapter letter. Now before we get into the meat of it, I want to stop for a moment and just think about Advent. Uh, usually we stop our series and... Um, have uh, an Advent series, and because we are in the midst of a Route 66 study, we're looking at all 66 books of the Bible in a 52-week calendar year, so that means we are moving right through December here, through the Advent season with our series. Uh, we're not really shifting on that, but I wanted to take a moment and just think a little bit about Advent from the perspective of Second Peter. Uh, Advent, the word means coming, and of course it references, right, the coming of Jesus uh, to, uh, to be born and placed in a, in a manger in Bethlehem, right? That's the coming we're talking about when we celebrate Advent. 
uh, Peter actually uses this word three times to describe the coming of Jesus. But he, of course, is not referring to Jesus' coming that first Christmas in Bethlehem. He is referring to Jesus' second coming, or we would say second advent. Jesus' first coming was marked by humility and sacrifice, but Jesus' second coming would be marked by power and glory. And so even the colors of Advent, I think, draw attention to this. Uh, Purple and dark blue, colors of royalty. So in in the history of the church, Christmas and the Advent season was not just a joyful time of mirth and feasting. There was a soberness to it because it It was a reflection on the coming of the king. The king has come. Now, we don't recognize, uh, certainly the first century people did not recognize Jesus as king as he came in that, uh, that manger in Bethlehem, but he was indeed a king. And uh, as we think about Jesus' first coming, we would be mindful to also think of his second coming. So many missed his first coming. And we ought not miss his second coming. Uh, So each of these letters, we've been looking at uh, each of the letters here in the New Testament written to these first century believers. Uh, They were written by Paul and John and James. They were written to help the church, the young church, the new church sort of properly understand the gospel and to know how to live in light of the gospel as God's redeemed people. So uh, the backstory here of Peter. The letter was written, of course, by the apostle Peter. Peter was a fisherman by trade, called by Jesus to be one of the 12 disciples. Uh, Peter quickly became the leader of the 12. Uh, His name always stands at the head of the list when it comes to uh, recounting of the disciples in the gospel accounts. And he, of course, became a leading apostle in the early years of the church. Uh, Peter identifies himself here in the letter in some unique ways. Uh, He identifies himself as an eyewitness of Jesus' transfiguration in chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. He was there. Uh, He and James and John, those three, were there on the mountain when Jesus revealed himself in a unique way, revealed his glory, sort of pulled back the veil a little bit. And let them see beyond his humanity to his deity and his power. And then uh, Peter also, towards the end of the letter, uh, identifies himself as a close associate of the Apostle Paul. uh, In chapter 3, verse 15. So again, you get a couple of unique glimpses. Not only does Peter identify himself at the outset in verse 1, but you get a couple other unique sort of autobiographical Uh, reflections from Peter the Apostle. The letter was written to exiles, believers living as a mistreated minority in an antagonistic culture. Uh, To be fair, Peter does not overtly identify his readers here in 2 Peter. Uh, But in chapter 3, he says that this is the second time he has written to them. So we can reasonably reasonably assume that 1 Peter is the first letter that he wrote to this group of people, and 2 Peter is the second letter. And uh, Peter does identify his readers in in the first letter as 
exiles. He gives them this very interesting designation, exiles. They were not ethnic exiles uh, taken out of their homeland. They were spiritual exiles. They were living in an environment that was antagonistic and hostile to their faith. And they were having to think about what it looks like to live in, uh, in exile. By the way, is something we're having to give thought to as well, aren't we? What does it look like for us to live faithfully as followers of Jesus in a culture that, in, that does not embrace uh, the commitments of the Christian faith? So uh, this, is, this, is the, this is the group that Peter is writing to. It appears that Peter was writing from Rome. Uh, church history tells us that Peter died in Rome as a martyr. And Peter really tells us quite overtly here in chapter 1 that his death was imminent. He knew he didn't have long to live. And so, um, again, we can reasonably assume that Peter was in Rome as he wrote this letter. Uh, Peter was writing to confront the growing influence of false teachers. Again, in Peter's first letter, he addressed external opposition. But in this second letter, he addressed the more insidious internal threat to the church. So that leads me to a brief purpose statement that I would uh, submit to you. Believers should stand firm in the faith and not be tripped up by false teaching. Believers should stand firm in the faith and not be tripped up by false teaching. Here's my quick summary of Peter's second letter. I think there's a couple of points. Uh, we're going to kind of move through the text with a simple outline, but before we do that, there's a couple of points where I think we just see Peter's intent, why he's writing, and it comes through very clearly. Um, one of those is in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. This is the passage that Mark read for us here today and here Paul uh, Peter rather says he's reminding them verse 12 so I will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are fully firmly established in the truth you now have I think it right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things so Peter is telling them what he already told them. He's reminding them of what he has already communicated to them previously. But he's, he's bringing it before them again. And he's committed. As long as he is in the body, as long as he has breath, he is committed to reminding these believers of their faith. And he goes a step further than that because he knows that he's going to die shortly he knows that he will no longer have the opportunity in the years to come to remind them, so he writes it down. <laughs> and we can be so glad that he did. Right? Not only did these readers, these first century readers, have access to Peter's exhortation, but so do we in the 21st century. Uh, this is Peter's, we might say, valediction, right? his goodbye, his last words. And so he, he wants to um, leave them with the truths of the gospel. Um, uh, it's like a parent who maybe knows they're dying. 
right, and leaves a, either a written record or records um, a statement that they wish to make to their children uh, that they could look back on in the years to come, right? This is, this is something similar to what Peter's doing here. This is part of his, of his purpose. Uh, he also wants them to have a steady, mature, and growing faith that would not be susceptible to false teaching. If you look at the very end of the letter, I think you also kind of catch a glimpse of Peter's purpose. Uh, chapter 3, verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless, by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So again, he doesn't want them to get tripped up along the way. Matter of fact, here in uh, 3.17, he makes reference, uses this imagery of falling. He actually uses it a couple times in the letter. This is one of the the key metaphors. He doesn't want them to stumble or to get tripped up uh, in their journey. Uh, Some of you know that uh, my father-in-law, who happens to be one of our elders fell uh, several weeks ago and um, injured both legs pretty severely. He's not able to, both of his legs are immobilized, and we're, we're within a week now of him being able to actually start to bend his knees. We're going to start to work on range of motion. But it was a fall, and you don't plan falls, right? Tripping hazards do not announce themselves. Uh, whether it's a slippery surface or a slight difference in elevation between two sections of sidewalk, right? It's usually there's something very subtle about a fall. And while Jack's uh, recovery is long and arduous, um, it's even more serious to think of falling spiritually, right? Of getting tripped up. And so this, this, is, this is sort of part of the, the imagery that Peter has in mind as he's writing to them, that they would not stumble or fall, but that they'd have a steadiness about them in, in regards to their faith. So as we look through uh, the letter, I'm going to suggest uh, three, three uh, aspects here, uh, sort of a, the movement of the letter. Uh, First of all, the the remedy against false teachers. So Peter wants to lay down some groundwork that will serve them well in enduring and and avoiding false teaching and deception. And then he's going to talk in chapter 2 about the the reality of false teachers. He's going to describe what they look like and the characteristics in this particular context. He's going to sort of expose them. And then the response to false teachers. What should they do in light of these kinds of insidious threats from within the church? So the remedy, the remedy against false teachers. Uh, again, he wants them to have a really robust understanding of their faith. Notice how he describes this here in chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. So we have reference here to God's promises that um, Peter wants to, to remind 
his readers of. Uh, what a great statement here at the outset. Through his divine power, through God's divine power, he has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Um, I think when he says this, he means life as in eternal life. Uh, so he's given us eternal life, but he's also given us everything we need for godliness. He's also given us everything we need to know how to live now in, in, in this culture, in this time. Uh, what a wonderful statement that God has provided everything we need for the future, for eternity, and for now. And it, it's very clear, Peter's drawing attention, it's, this is not something that we have discovered through our ingenuity or accomplished by our efforts, but this is something God has done, right? There's a supernatural element to this. It is God's divine power that has brought us out of darkness into light, brought us out of death into life, right? Brought us out of confusion into understanding. Uh, all of this has come about by his by his power, and he's granted us his promises, right? Uh, what are those promises? Participation in the divine nature, uh, the end of chapter 4. So that through them, so that through these promises, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, so we were, in our natural condition, estranged from God. Uh, in our sin, uh, we were God's enemies. Uh, but we have been uh, now made participants in his divine nature. We've now been brought into fellowship with God. We've been joined to God through Christ. This is one of the promises that is certainly extended to the believer a purposeful and a fruitful life. Uh, verses 5 through 9. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of an interesting juxtaposition here. In verse 3, he talks about God's activity, God's divine power. God's the one who's bringing about our salvation, right? But then in verse 5, he urges these believers to make every effort, to exert energy. Uh, our salvation is not something that we earn or merit or work for, but sanctification is... Uh, is something that requires effort. So God has set us free from slavery. He's made us alive. But we have now a responsibility to sort of live into that reality, to claim those freedoms. And that does require uh, effort on our part. And he, he makes the connection here. There's a whole string of different qualities there. Uh, but the beginning one is faith, and the, the ultimate sort of product is love. <laughs> that our faith ought to lead us towards love. And so he unpacks this, and notice the great promise there in verse 8. For if you possess these qualities 
in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive or unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what a great, what a great promise. If you walk in God's ways, if you seek to now uh, follow Jesus as your master, uh, you will live a fruitful life, a life full of meaning. Uh, it doesn't mean your life will be easy. Uh, you'll encounter hardship just like everyone else. You might have physical trials just like other people do. But there is a fruitfulness and a purpose to life if you choose to, if you commit yourself to walking in God's ways. Uh, protection and assurance uh, here in verses 10 and 11. Again, another promise here. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, these qualities, if you live in this way, you will never stumble. There's our falling imagery again. You will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's extending to them all these great promises. You know, in the midst of... Uh, uh, the context of false teaching, Peter wants them to be really clear about who they are in Christ and the promises that God has extended to them. He also talks uh, here about the importance of remembering in this opening section. Uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting theme. This is another key word. He talks a lot about forgetting and about reminding and about remembering uh, over and over and over again in this short letter. It's telling us something about our propensity to forget. And so Peter just continues to bring things back in front of them. And the whole reason he wrote the letter is that they could have a perpetual, enduring reminder. Uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a call to keep coming back to God's word. The gospel isn't just for unbelievers out there. The gospel is for you and me. <laughs> I need, the, I need the gospel today just as much as I did the first day I heard it. And we need to, to be reminded, continue to orient around true north. <laughs> we hear you, Esther. We hear you. Love to hear. Uh, and then he talks about a solid foundation. Solid foundation in verses 16 through 21. Um, here Peter talks about uh, really, some of the, he starts to get into some of the, the aspects of false teaching. And, and the bottom line, people were doubting the return of Jesus. This is really the crux of it. And actually, he's going to get into it even more in chapter 3, really outlining the specific false teachings. But that was the crux of it. The early church expected that Jesus was going to return right away to establish his kingdom. You read Acts chapter 1. The disciples are like, okay, is, this, is now the time? Is now the time that you're going to establish your kingdom? I mean, this was their expectation. And as months turned into years, uh, some began to become rather disillusioned, a bit skeptical, a bit jaded about all of this. And... So, so this, is the, this is the context here. People were beginning to doubt the, the promises about Jesus' return. Maybe latching onto Jesus as a, a good moral teacher, but not as the king who was going to come and reign. And so Peter is reminding them that 
the promises about Jesus' return have a solid foundation. This is not some myth or urban legend. Peter again says, I was there. I was there with James and John on the mountain when, uh, when the veil was pulled back and we were blinded by the brilliance of Christ and we heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved son. This is my king, my designated representative in the world. Peter says, we were there. And he goes on to say here, beginning in verse 19, not only do you have my eyewitness testimony, but you have the, 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 the prophetic record. You have the scriptures that tell you of the reign of the Messiah. Wonderful section there in verses 19 through 21, the end of that chapter, about the nature of scripture. How the Holy Spirit moved along the prophets to communicate what they wrote down. And so he, he's wanting to just confirm to them that, uh, that Jesus is returning. <laughs> he is returning to reign. We have a solid foundation for our faith. So he, he's, again, urging them to remember God's promises, to remember God's word. This is sort of the, the remedy, right, against the false teachers, and he wants them to, to, to just have a, a strong commitment uh, to those things. We also have here um, what I'm calling the reality of false teachers. Here in chapter 2, he actually uh, has an extended section in which he describes these individuals and the impact they were having in the church. Uh, they're introduced in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. So I think one of the key words there is uh, secret, secretly. Right? There's the subtlety. These individuals will secretly, subtly introduce certain destructive teachings into the church. This is not a frontal attack, right? This is a very insidious um, development that's taking place under the surface within the church. And many will be led astray. Uh, we also have a, a condemnation of these false teachers. Uh, Peter makes it very clear that God is going to bring judgment on them. Chapter 2, verse 4. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what, was, what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to hold the unrighteous for punishment 
on the day of judgment. So God brought judgment on the angels. God brought judgment on the earth uh, during the days of Noah. And God, of course, brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God is able to preserve the righteous while carrying out his judgment on the wicked. And Peter just makes it very clear that God will address this kind of false teaching. There's this shot over the bow here <laughs> to say this is, this is going to come, this kind of thing is going to come under God's judgment. Uh, he goes on to describe the false teachers here, beginning in uh, verse 10. Uh, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. So here's this really... A graphic description of these false teachers. They're bold and arrogant. They have rejected God's word, God's authority. Uh, matter of fact, it says that they are just like animals, right? Being driven by their, just their instincts and their passions. They're just doing what they want to do. <laughs> uh, no, no higher sense of, of authority. They, they've rejected all of that. They're given over to excesses, uh, drunkenness, and gluttony, uh, captured here by uh, that, that word carouse in verse 13, uh, engaged in sexual immorality, uh, pursuing adultery, motivated by greed. As a matter of fact, he, he, he creates a parallel here with Balaam, son of Bezor. And you might remember that Old Testament account where Balaam was hired by one of the foreign kings to curse Israel. And this foreign king offered Balaam all sorts of money to curse Israel. And, uh, of course, when Balaam went to pronounce the curse, only blessing came out. <laughs> but Balaam was sort of enamored with the promise of riches, uh, more so than with, the, the, uh, you know, with, with pleasing God, right? Driven by his own greed. And that was the case with these false teachers, so this is the, the, the sense of them. I want you to notice here the connection between the false teaching and their, their lifestyle, their, their, their doctrinal error and their behavioral patterns. Right? So they were, they were doubting the return of Jesus. Like, oh yeah, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but goodness, I mean, how many years have passed now? You guys keep telling us that he's going to return, and he's not. And so they were doubting the return of Jesus in judgment, in power, in glory. 
And that, I think, is related to their commitment to live an ungodly life, right? If, if, if there's no accountability, if, there's no, uh, if, I'm, if I'm never going to stand before a judge and give an account for my life, then I'm going to live however I please, right? But if Christ is returning, and we will all give an account for the deeds done in the body, then we ought to give very careful thought to our actions. There's a relationship between their doctrine and their lifestyle. By the way, that's true for all of us. Uh, theology is not some irrelevant thing that John Marco studies at Cornerstone University, right? Uh, our actions are guided by our beliefs. And we certainly see that here with the false teachers. Chapter 3 includes a response to false teachers. A response to false teachers. And here he gives several exhortations. Remember the apostolic teaching. Remember the apostolic teaching. Here it is, chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So here's this memory terminology again, right? I'm reminding you, I'm reminding you, I'm writing these things to you to remind you so that you can stimulate wholesome thinking, so that you can think correctly, right? I want you to recall the words, not just my words, but the words spoken in the past by the prophets, right? The scriptures. So he's, he's urging them to remember the apostolic teaching. He also urges them to remember the certainty of God's judgment. Remember the certainty of God's judgment. Chapter 3, verse 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So these individuals, these scoffers, by the way, uh, uh, a scoffer is a skeptic, a person who makes fun of or makes light of someone or something, right? So they're like, oh, you keep talking about this. This is never going to happen. Jesus is never going to return. You've been saying this now for years. And Peter reminds them of the judgment that God brought on the earth in the great flood, the global flood of Noah's day. And he's going to bring judgment on the world again by means of fire in the days to come. So remember the certainty of God's judgment. God is patient, God is compassionate, but God's judgment is 
sure. We will all stand before him. Uh, remember the God's perspective, priorities, and promises. This is a wonderful section here uh, in which Peter just urges them to, to, to seek to understand God and his ways, which are above our ways, right? Chapter 3, verse 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So remember God's perspective. Remember uh, that God is a timeless God. He's the great I am. He does not age. So we think, oh, 20 years have gone by. That's a long time. It's not a long time to God. A thousand years is not a long time to God. Right? He reminds them again of God's priorities. God is patient because he is desiring that everyone comes to repentance. Jesus has not delayed his return because he is passive or forgetful, right? He is compassionate. He is giving every opportunity for people to repent. Urges them again to remember God's promises. The day of the Lord will come suddenly. And all will be exposed. By the way, some translations there in verse 10 uh, talk about the earth being destroyed. And I, I don't think that's, a, I, th- I think the NIV gets it right here in, in this idea of, uh, or the ESV says that, that all things will be exposed. The NIV says laid bare. I think the pattern here is the flood, right? Here's the parallel. God brought judgment on the world by means of the flood. He didn't obliterate the earth, but he purified it and judged it by means of water, and he's going to do the same thing again by means of fire in the last days. And then Peter closes here with some exhortations uh, to live in light of God's coming judgment. Chapter 3, verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So this reference to the day of God... He wants them to look uh, ahead and live in light of the day of God. The day of the Lord, an Old Testament context, right? The day when all accounts are settled. The day when, when God brings about his judgment on sin. Uh, we should live in light of that day. It's a sobering day, but it's also a day of great hope for the believer, We're looking forward to it, Peter says in verse 13. We're not just dreading it, even though we're sobered by it. 
in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We're looking forward to the time when there is no more, when there's no more death, right? When all things are made right again, no more shootings, no more cancer, no more identity theft, no more political manipulations, no more broken marriages, no more mental health struggles. This is a place, this new heaven and new earth are the place where righteousness dwells. And that word dwells means permanently dwells. (laughs) Not just comes to visit, but righteousness sets up shop. This is what we long for. We have to live in light of that great coming day. I think there's great theology here. Uh, Peter teaches us that the end for the, the, the eternal state for the believer is not heaven, but earth. Um, we are not disembodied spirits. We are humans. We've been created with material and immaterial parts, right? And... Uh, We are not going to just float in the clouds for all of eternity. There is a coming resurrection of the dead. (laughs) When the dead will be raised to life. And Peter says the home of righteousness is on the new earth. Revelation 21 and 22 tell us amazingly that God will establish his presence with his people. Not that we will go to him, but that he will come to us. Wonderful promises. And I think there's great theological significance in all of that. Um, We don't just get on an escape pod where God rescues us from this world. No, God reclaims what is his, his creation. Satan doesn't win. God wins. And Revelation 21 and 22 look an awful lot like Genesis 1 and 2. Once again, access to the tree of life. And the garden imagery surfaces again. And God makes all things right. And so wonderful hope that is conveyed here in these verses in Second Peter chapter 3. And, and uh, Peter wants them to live in light of that great day. The day of God, the day of Christ's return. Uh, the letter here... Uh, utilizes an interesting structure, and and we won't get into the weeds on this. It's actually called a chiasm, and it's a very common uh, literary technique that is used by biblical writers. And it involves symmetry. So it's not just the raw communication of information, but biblical writers would often put together their their writings in a way that had sort of balance and symmetry. So the letter here begins and ends with a call to make every effort to live out your faith. And then if we kind of look in a little bit further, we see these charges to look to Christ's return. Uh, and there, right at the, begin, the, the, the center of the letter is that stark warning to beware of false teachers. And this is one of the other purposes of the chiastic pattern is to bring focus to the point of a letter. 
And so Peter's warning here to beware of false teaching is sort of highlighted even in how the letter is put together. So I, my prayer for you and is that we would stand firm in the faith and not be tripped up by false teachings. We can certainly lament what's happening in our culture. There are a lot of external threats, but I would suggest to you that the greatest threats that we face as a church are from within. And uh, we, we might think we're not susceptible to false teaching. We are, right? There's so many ways in which the culture influences how we think, and we need to continue to, to kind of come back to Scripture so that we think correctly. Uh, the elders bear responsibility as gatekeepers in the local church, right? But I think if we read Peter's letter correctly, we all bear responsibility to guard uh, the, 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 the purity of doctrine and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that we will not stumble, that we will not be, be tripped up in our faith along the way.